Thank you for listening to this sermon from Redeemer Church. We pray that as you listen to this message, that your heart would be softened, your ears would be opened, and your affections for Jesus would be stirred. We pray that through the Holy Spirit, you would look more like Jesus and know Him more as we strive to be a gospel-centered, disciple-making family together in Wichita Falls. Well, today we're looking at uh, a very important topic, a very important characteristic that I think is pretty prevalent today. It's at least prevalent in my own life. It's the idea of passivity. If you read this passage and, and look at all of John chapter 18, you'll see passivity just plaguing the people that are interacting with Jesus. And so passivity has shown itself in, in many ways uh, in my life. In college, I uh, was not passive about everything, but I was passive about some things. Uh, I, was very, I took very seriously the, the people that were uh, in my home and the parties that I liked to throw and how I was going to organize my Friday night and my Saturday night and my Sunday night and maybe my Thursday night. I was very well organized in all of that, but whenever it came to uh, let's say things like what I was in school for, uh, like, uh, like an education that wasn't something that was at the, the, the pinnacle of my uh, priority list. And uh, whenever I was in high school, uh, some of my, the things that, were, uh, that I was serious about that, that uh, uh, kind of came out in my passivity in education was I was very serious about, you know, like making my friend Phil laugh during class. Um, I, I, I was trying to be the class clown and sort of like, oh, this is easy anyways. I have Phil to be able to uh, teach me calculus later on, you know, like uh, he, he'll be able to do, do this. And one of my favorite games was making my buddy Phil, who's right here, by the way, this is why I'm talking so much about him, um, was making my buddy, buddy Phil uh, pay attention to me and try to get him to laugh while he was paying attention to the thing that he was going to teach me later on that day. Um, he's a great teacher. I'm surprised you're not a teacher, Phil. Like that, that actually surprised, that actually surprises me. He taught me well. I know a lot of stuff, uh, mostly, m- mostly from you. And so, so, um, most of the time passivity is not something that you have, um, uh, really internalized in every aspect of your life. You're just passive about some things. I think this is, um, so prevalent, especially in men, even though it's, it's, it's both male and female. Like, I think it's easy for us as men sometimes to be like really serious about a select few things, but the things that are super important, the same things that are super clear and revealed in scripture, these are the things that we tend to be passive about. And so we're, we're serious about our work. We're serious about thinking about our work and systematically organizing it and how, how we can run our meetings better and, and all that stuff, but whenever we get home, what happens is this subtle passivity begins to, to seep in, and we, we kind of flip on autopilot a little bit, and it's like, man, I've been working so hard all day long. Now it's just time for me to coast, where whenever you look at the scriptures, you're like, if you're a dad in this room, you're like, oh, instruction, that raise up our children, the instruction, the discipline of the Lord, uh, wash our wife in the water of the word, like all these things are things that God directly says for us to do, but it just like, man, I'm like, what do you want from me? I've been working, I've been giving all of my mental energy over here, I've been giving all my emotions 
social energy over here. I've been giving maybe even all of my spiritual energy over here to these people that I just need a place of my wife and my kids are just here for my own comfort zone to kind of make me smile whenever the kids are doing something over here or to have a wife that is taking care of the things and I just feel really good about. This is how some of my passivity works its way in uh, to my life. And when, and this is, this is the case for, for women as well. I, I don't want to just pick on men ever. Um, or I don't want to really pick on anyone. I just want to try to make and drive some certain points home that it's sometimes easy for uh, women to, to be like, oh, uh, this is my responsibility, but this Instagram page is just so, so, so intriguing. Or, or this Pinterest board isn't going to build itself, you know, like my, 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 uh, 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 the Pinterest board, I, I don't know, maybe I don't know anything about Pinterest. Maybe Pinterest boards do build themselves, but you know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? Uh, there's this thing over here that's really, really important that the, the most important things seem to be on the back burner and I'm passive about. And so we, we all have these things and what we're going to see all throughout this chapter is Jesus is constantly confronting all the people that he is interacting with is you have to make a decision about what you think and what you feel about me. That's what Jesus is saying here in John uh, chapter 18. So I want to actually go back a little bit to some of the verses that we read last week just to kind of catch us all up on this picture of passivity that keeps on happening all throughout this chapter, okay? So I encourage you to have your Bible, keep your Bible open, because we're going to be going all through the Gospel of John. John chapter 18, verse 4. Look back at verse 4. What does it say? It says, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Who do you seek? Well, which is it? You ever wonder this whenever the Bible asks a question like this or instructs, instructs us or reveals himself this way? He's like, he knew everything, and then he asked a question seemingly about something that he didn't know. Well, which is it? Does he know or does he not know? No, listen, what he's doing with these people right here is he is getting in their face, and he's saying, tell me. Draw a line in the sand. How do you stand with me? What are you seeking? He's getting them to reject passivity. And you remember what happened. You remember what happened right here in this, in this uh, passage? He says, who do you seek? They say, Jesus is Nazareth. And then he responded with what? I am. I am. And then what happened to, the, to these folks? They fell down on their can immediately. Uh, we talked about this last week, but if you weren't here with us, we, we, uh, the commentators say here in, in this passage, whenever they fell back after he says, I am, is that the divine glory of Jesus seemed to just burst forth in this moment. It burst forth. It couldn't be held in. In the divine name of God, I am, ego I may, whenever Jesus declared it, it knocked everyone down and they fell back. Clue number one, that this was a bad idea. <laughs> this was a bad idea to go and try to arrest the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the God of Gods. But they did it, but they did it anyways. And after he said this, this is what's nuts and absolutely in, insane is Jesus went over to him, picked him up, you know, like help, helped him like, hey, get up, get up. Hey, come on. Hey, you good? You good? All right. How's your back? All right. You, we all good? All right. Next question. Whom do you seek? He goes right back to it. <laughs> like he goes right back to it. And I can't imagine 
They, I, I wish I, I understood the tone, or I wish I saw this, right? You ever, you ever wish that? That, like, man, I want to see this, like, on video. I want to capture it. I want to capture this moment right here. And I can't imagine they said it with the same authority. It was like, we're looking for Jesus, you know? Like, uh, he's like, I told you that I am he. I told you that I am he. And, and because I told you that I am he, let these people go. Now, we're going to come back to that because that's a very crucial part of this, this passage that Jesus says, let these people go. Talking about all of his disciples, just take me. Let's go to verse 10. It says, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's ear, uh, struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Then G Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its, in its thief. What, what God is doing right here, what Jesus is doing right here, is he's explaining something to us that we all need to pay attention to. Remember, remember where Peter is in this moment. Uh, the, uh, the other gospels kind of lay out the setting a little bit better than the gospel of John. Uh, Peter was in the garden of Gethsemane with Jesus, and Jesus pleaded with Peter, please stay up with me. Pray with me. For my soul is bereft to the point of death. Peter, can you pray? Can you pray with me? Go, go further into the, the garden with Peter, James, and John. Listen to my, to, my, to my pleas. Listen to my cries. And he went to go check on Peter. And what was Peter doing? He was napping. He was napping. So Peter is late to the game here. He's a little late to the game. And he just comes in swinging, which I kind of admire that about Peter. He's like, no, not Jesus. And, and like he wasn't trying to go for his ear, right? He wasn't just like doing some fencing stuff. And like, just ear, just ear, just to, right? He was swinging for his head. And he missed his head somehow, just got his ear. There's a little, he was trying to, deca his kappa was detained from his head right there. That's what he was going for. And he, and, and he missed, according, uh, apparently Malchus, not, wasn't just uh, a high priest servant, was also uh, into jujitsu or something and just did one of these things and just got the ear cut off. All right, so this is, this is an amazing thing. Peter is napping, shows up swinging and gets a rebuke from Jesus. Gets a rebuke from Jesus, and he's like, Peter, do you not know what's going on? Stop swinging. Stop swinging. I'm doing this for you, Peter. Did I tell you? You've been with me for three years, Peter. Did I tell you? Now's the time for us to go and fight. What's my kingdom built on? We're going to see that here in just a little bit. But what happens here is, remember, Malchus is sitting around, and he's just like, my ear... I'm bleeding. I got this ringing. Jesus bends down. What does he do? He's like, here's this ear. Here you go. A couple of chapters right before this, he raised a little one from the dead. A couple of chapters before that, he healed so many people. And then his authority and his control right here when the greatest injustice in the history of injustice is taking place. What's going on? What's going on? Jesus is perfectly in control and still doing what he always does heals those that are hurting and that are broken, even those that are coming to arrest him, to, to very nearly, um, very in the near future, hurt him, beat him, and torture him. Jesus is always in control. It's amazing. Follow me in verse 12. It says, so the band of soldiers and their captains and officers uh, of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. They led him to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest this year. Now listen to this. 
to where we left off last week. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient for one man, uh, that one man should die for the people. Commentators say that Caiaphas, one of the things that he was doing as he was uh, communicating to all the people uh, that were trying to get rid of Jesus, uh, prophesied that year that it would be expedient for one man to die for the sins of the people. And what this passage is trying to reveal to us is it looks like Caiaphas has conscribed a perfectly executed plan to get rid of the Jesus problem here. And this is part of his, part of his plan. He's like, you know what, let's just get this one guy to, to, to be uh, killed for the sake of the people because we'll talk about this in just a little bit. The Jews had already been rioting and rioting and rioting in Jerusalem for the couple of years, especially since this guy named Pontius Pilate became uh, the governor of this area. And so go down with me to verse 19. This is him at Annas' house. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. All right? So he's put on trial. When is this happening, by the way? Is this happening in the middle of the day? Is this happening um, as, uh, as a, a, a judicial uh, system that is really above board in every, every area? No. This is in the middle of the night, this place. This is, a, this, is a, this is a mob that has taken him away in the middle of the night and now is doing a speedy trial so that they have all their ducks in a row and then are going to try to carry out this plan. This is all part of Caiaphas, uh, Caiaphas's uh, contriving here. And he says, I've spoken to you openly. And this is what Jesus says in verse 20. I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues, not in the middle of the night, like you, you jamokes over here in the, in the temple where uh, all the Jews come together. I, I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said. They know what I said. You know, he's saying you can't bring any charge against uh, anyone who, apart from two or three witnesses, why are you asking me what I said? Why don't you ask the other people? Why don't you follow your own law, folks? Why don't you follow your own judicial system? You're not even doing that. Jesus is still speaking true to the people that are about to crucify him right here. Jesus has nothing to hide. He has nothing to hide. And as soon as he says this, what happens? What happens? One of the officers struck him on the cheek, probably, pun probably punched him. Uh, it was, was the first part of his beating. And notice the remarkable restraint here. Jesus doesn't respond. He doesn't give him another, I am, and they fall down. He doesn't do that. What, uh, if, I, if I was Jesus, I would have been like, truly, truly, I am. Everyone's just falling down constantly. It's like, y'all sure you want to do this, folks? Is everyone sure that they actually want to do this? But no, he shows absolute restraint. And he just, he reasons with them. He reasons with them. He says, when he said these things, one of the officers struck Jesus and Jesus said to him, if what I said was wrong, bear witness about the wrong. Well, if, what if I said was right? Why do you strike me? What is he doing? He's like, hey, are you following the law right now? Are, 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 are you, you going to be passive as well? Like it's passivity to just do the group think of what everyone else is doing. He, he looks at every single person that has an interaction with him. And G the Lord is highlighting all of, these, all of these things for us to see. What is Jesus actually doing? He's saying, what do you say about me? How are you interacting with me? What, what is your response to me in, in church? Church, is that what we have to do every single time we open the word? 
Every single time we open the word, we got to deal with, Lord, what are you doing? How, how am I re- going to respond to you whenever there's something that comes up in the word that's hard or difficult for me to understand or goes against my preferences, either in my upbringing or my worldview or what my culture says is right and wrong? Are you saying, Lord, I'm definitely going to do whatever you say to do because whenever Jesus speaks and teaches hard things, what he's doing is he's looking at us and he's at, asking counseling questions. How do you respond to this? Uh, maybe you can't trace my hand of what's going on right now, but can't you trace my heart? Don't you know my character? Don't you know that I'm loving? Don't you know that I've saved you while you're my enemy? Uh, maybe you don't know what's going on right now, dear friend, but don't you know the nature and character of God? And this is how we have to respond. We have to respond to we're like, okay, I got to deal with Jesus every single time I go to his word. Every single time. And then verse 28, this is crazy. He says, then they led Jesus to the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. Now the governor's headquarters was not a Jewish man. Uh, the, the governor's headquarters was obviously a Gentile. And it says this, and it was early morning. They themselves did, did not go into the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. See, it was in their law that no, they couldn't go even to a house of an unclean person that wasn't ceremonially washed. And they were so blinded by their religion that they were doing the greatest injustice that the world has ever seen, but yet they followed their moral and religious code. Uh, how blinding and powerful is religion over a heartfelt relationship with Jesus? It is so easy for us to say, well, I did all the right stuff. I, I obeyed well enough. I did what the preacher told me. I did what the church doctrine taught me to do. I followed, I catechized, I did all the stuff. But if it's not connected through faith in the grace of Jesus and a heartfelt love and devotion to the person and work of Jesus, this is all fruitless. This is all pointless. It doesn't matter how good or how bad this time is. All that matters is your heart. God doesn't look at us the same way that we look at each other. We judge the outward appearance, but God is the one that judges our hearts. And he's saying, are you whole the way in with me? Whenever I say hard things, are you just saying, God, that is a hard thing, but I know the desires of your heart. I know that you're with me. I know that you love me and I love you too. Help my unbelief, help it. Let me press in and be devoted to you with everything that I, everything that I am. That was kind of a sermon within a sermon, but look at the, look at the blinding, the blind, the, the blinders of religion right here. And so they get, that gets us to Pilate, all right? That gets us to Pilate, the ultimate passive leader here. And what's crazy about, what's crazy about Pilate here is he is been in actually a whole lot of trouble. He's been in a whole lot of trouble with some of uh, the religious leaders ever since he's been governing, uh, governing this area. Uh, and so let's, let's start in, in verse 29, and I'll share with you some of the, uh, the hot water that Pilate has actually been in. So Pilate went outside to them. This was not an uncommon thing uh, that's been happening during his reign. He says, what accusation do you bring against this man? What's going on here? What accusations do you bring? What's going on? Verse 30, and they said to him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you, which is the ultimate sidestep, right? You know, they're not about justice here where they were just like, what do you mean? What did he do? We're here. 
We're here, shouldn't that be the only thing that actually matters? And by the way, you Gentile person, we can't even go into your house right now because of our religious code. This is so deep in our religious code, you probably wouldn't understand it. So just trust us and do exactly what we want you to do. Do exactly what we want you to do. And so what's going on is a little cat and mouse game between the religious leaders and Pontius Pilate. Let me share with you why Pontius Pilate was struggling right now. Pontius Pilate, as soon as he became uh, governor of this area, uh, he was not actually in good graces with Rome. That's why he got this, that's why he got this job. He, all the elites in the Roman uh, Empire during this time wanted to be in Rome. This is where all the magic was happening. It, it's where uh, the greatest city in the world happened. There was clean water, plumbing, all this stuff was actually happening in Rome. And so Pontius Pilate was kind of banished to this backwoods area where there's just a bunch of olive trees and stuff, and he is put as governor over here. And the first thing that he did is he came in too hot with the people of this area. And so whenever he came in, he put flags up everywhere about the the emperor who was Tiberius Caesar at the time. And he put up a flag on the temple whenever he first showed up. Well, if you know anything about the temple, that was a oh no, no on the list of the Jews. And so what they did was is they rioted for a very, very long time as soon as Pontius Pilate showed up. And so he was trying to figure out the customs. He didn't understand what he did wrong. And then he stopped it. Then uh, one of the things that Pontius Pilate wanted to do because he was probably an egomaniac is he says, I want to bring an aqueduct to this area. And so he didn't have any money to do it. And Rome wasn't interested in building infrastructure in Jerusalem and in this little area. And so what he did is he went into the place that had the most gold in the area. What place do you think that was? The temple. So he sent in Roman soldiers into the temple treasury and he raided it for a little bit. And after he he raided it, guess what the people did? They rioted again. And so he doesn't actually have a very good track record with the people of this this time. And then not only that, but during one of these raids, he dressed people up. He dressed his Roman soldiers up to disperse the crowd as Galileans. And then he went through with, they went through with short swords and they started killing all the rioters little by little. And so there's people dropping down with swords all over the place in the middle of the riot. And there was pandemonium, but that dispersed the crowd, but it didn't earn him a whole lot of political favor with the people of his day. And so Caiaphas is coming in, not with a whole lot of grace towards Pontius Pilate. And so Pontius Pilate doesn't have a whole lot of grace from Rome because they're saying, what are you doing, man? Everyone else is organizing their government and no one's having any problem. But your area is constantly rioting. Get it under control. And so what's happening is Caiaphas came here with this big mob and Jesus, and it looks like it's going to be another riot. And so they're trying what... What the high priests are doing during this time is they're trying to get Pilate under his thumb and say, really, we want you to do exactly what we want you to do. And by the way, this isn't because he was so crafty. It's because he was passive with Jesus. And he knew that all the Jewish people in droves believed in Jesus and were amazed at his his miracles. And if the Jews had to stone Jesus, that wouldn't have been a good look on the high priests who were carrying out the execution. 
But also it goes deeper than that. You still with me, by the way? There's some history here. You still with me? It goes deeper than that. See, Caiaphas was the high priest. That means he had the Old Testament memorized. He had the entire Old Testament memorized, and he knew what Deuteronomy 21:23 said, which was curses every man that's hung on a tree. And he knows if he could get, if he could get the Romans to crucify Jesus up on a tree, they could look at the people of, of, that are under their authority and say, look, he was a false prophet. God cursed him by hanging him up on a tree. And so this was a game of cat and mouse that was going on here. Caiaphas thought he had this great, awesome, masterful plan that was going to be executed according to his perfect desire. But what he didn't know was Jesus was in complete control every single step of the way. Every single step of the way, Jesus was ultimately in control. And look at verse 33. Look at verse 33. It says, So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus to them. He says, Are you the king of the Jews? What's going on here? Is this something I need to be worried about? Are you trying to overthrow me? Is essentially what his question is. And Jesus answered, do you say this on your own accord? Or did others say this about me? Pilate, so dismissive, ah, peasant. Am I a Jew? Your own nation and your chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my, servant would have been fight- my servants would have been fighting that I might not have been delivered over to the Jews. My kingdom is not of this world. And so Pilate, really what he's trying to do is he's trying to save face. He's like, are you trying to overthrow me right now? Is that what's going on? And Jesus, instead of, instead of looking at him and saying, you know nothing, he asked another counseling question. What kind of restraint does this God have? He says, hang on, Pilate. Are you concerned about who I am? He's offering compassion to the one that's going to have him flogged here in just a little bit and hung up on a tree. He says, "Are, are you concerned about who I am too? Look at the restraint of the Lord. Look at the compassion of the Lord. Look at the control of the Lord right here. And Pilate, so dismissive, so passive, doesn't have any time. All Pilate cares about is his own little kingdom, and he doesn't want it to come crumbling down. That's what what he doesn't want. He doesn't want everything that he has built to become crumbling down and have to go back to Rome with his tail between his legs eventually. And so he goes on to say, Am I the king of the Jews? And Jesus replied, Do you say this on your own accord, or do others say this about me? Then he goes on to say something is absolutely spectacular. In verse 37, it says, when Pilate had said this, he says, so you are a king. He says, you say that I'm a king, but let me tell you why I actually am coming. He says, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice, Pilate. Everyone that belongs to the way, everyone that belongs to the truth, everyone that belongs to life, which is truly life, listens to my voice, Pilate. And then he passively says, what is, what is truth? Like the first postmodern that the world has ever seen. What's truth? 
what your Bible says, what your teaching says, what you say, Jesus, what is truth? I don't have time for this. Look at the restraint. How did Jesus not say truth? Truth? What is truth? Truth is what's standing in front of you right now. I'm the way. I'm the life. Uh, no one comes to the Father except through me. I'm the, one that, I'm the one that's giving you every single breath right now. Pilate, I'm the truth. I'm the way. And you need to listen to my voice if you want life, which is truly life. He doesn't do that. And he doesn't do that. He just is passive with Jesus and says, God, I have no time. I have no time for your words about religion and religiosity and who you are as a person. I have no time for this. And I wonder, I wonder as we think about this, I wonder who you think Pilate represents in our culture and in this room. Pilate represents the person in this room that says, you know what? The Lordship of Jesus, going all in with the Lord, maybe. But what is truth right now? Like, I, I have other responsibilities. I have other theological debates that I got to get settled in my mind before I submit to Jesus as Lord. I have other things that I'm going through in my life that I, I, I can't even unpack, that is so hard for me to unpack, that I can't deal with Jesus on an ongoing basis in my life. Who does Pilate represent in this world? Pilate represents the people in this room that just say, you know what? This sounds like an important thing, and I'm here, ain't I? I'm here. But I just don't know if I can be super serious about it right now. I got a lot going on. I got a lot going on. And what we see here in the passivity of Pilate could be an American church that doesn't want to go all in with Jesus. Could be a church here at the, 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 the diamond buckle of the Bible Belt, which is Wichita Falls, Texas, to where we say, you know what, should we go... Should we go all the way in? Or, or, or should I save for, for retirement first? Do I, what, what Roth IRA, or what, what is it? Or don't I need to have all my ducks in a row? But, but what, about, what about my kid? And what about their education? And what about all these things? I'm not saying any of that's unimportant, but aren't these things, aren't these things the thing that we're primarily focused in whenever Jesus is saying, I'm everything. I'm everything for you. In the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, whenever you look at the book of Proverbs, it's trying to teach, the book of Proverbs is the book of wisdom, right? And trying to teach us how to live a wise life. And he says, this is the beginning of wisdom, get knowledge. He first says, before that, he says, this is the beginning of, the, of, uh, this is the beginning of wisdom, fear the Lord, fear the Lord. And then he says, you want to know how you get wisdom? You get knowledge. You want to know how you get not, you know, what you need to get wisdom more is you need to turn that wisdom or that knowledge into understanding. You turn that understanding into knowledge, all right? We talk about this at Redeemer Church by saying, every time we open up the Word of God, it needs to infect our head, our heart, and our hands. We need to read the Bible as if we are gathering. What does it say? Do I understand it? And then we need to work it into our heart. Do, have I internalized it and believed it? And then over time, we should have the expectation that this will make me live a transformed life. Do you see what Jesus says in the Gospel of John of who he is? I am the truth. I am the way. I am the life. No one comes to God except through me. What is that saying? The truth. I'm the knowledge that you need to fill up in your mind. 
the, the way. I'm the thing that you need to understand. You need to understand that my truth is what should infect every single thing. I am the ultimate way here in this life. And then what will that change? What will that turn us into? People that are living life, which is truly life, a wise life, a life that lives out the way of Jesus, not just with our mind and with our heart, but also with our hands. This is what the Lord, this is what the Lord is trying to communicate. And he looks to Pilate and he says, I'm the truth. Don't you understand that all of my people follow my truth? They walk by my way. Don't you understand? What, what was the first thing that the Christians were called? They weren't called Christians for a while. They were called the people of the way. They were called the people of the way. Read the book of Acts and it's all that. There's some cult out there that they call themselves the way. Why? Because they were filling themselves up with the truth of Jesus. And it was impacting the way that they lived their life so that they could have life which is truly life. Dear friends, don't you see the gravity of Jesus here? Don't you see how Jesus does not look at any single person that he has an encounter with and says, you're too far gone. You're too far gone. You will not be able to come to me. I, I know what you did on your computer. I know what you did uh, with, your, with your former wife. I know how you treated your children. I know how you cheated on your test. I know how no homework is ever getting done anymore because of ChatGPT, and you're just copy and pasting it, and it's just rampant plagiarism everywhere. I know. I know all of that, but he looks at us and says, look, no one's too far gone. He looks at all the people that are putting him on trial and saying, you have an opportunity to turn to the way, to the truth, and life. This is our way as Christians, is to look at everyone around us and say, do you know the truth? Do you understand the way of Jesus? Because he's the one that can give you life, which is truly life. Don't be, you cannot be passive with this man. He has not left this up to us. He has not left any wiggle room for us to say, you know what, maybe there's some ambiguity on some of the, the lordship claims of Christ. Maybe some of the things he said are culturally bound and we shouldn't actually um, apply them to our daily lives. You know, maybe, maybe this is some, some of this stuff is archaic. You don't think God who resurrected from the dead isn't wise enough to make his word relevant in every single culture, in every single tribe, in every single nation until we get to the ends of the earth? Of course he is. That is why Christianity is the only religion that actually spreads all over the earth. Every single thing is, every other religion is culturally bound. Every other philosophy has its time and place, except for Christianity that started in the Middle East, went up to Europe, came across to America, and is now more prevalent in the Southern Hemisphere than in the Northern Hemisphere, and that didn't happen until 2013. God, our Savior, is moving all of human history to make sure that people know that he is the only way, he is the only truth, and he is the only life. No one can come to Jesus. No one can come to God. No one can have real life except through him. How are you going to respond? Because in every, every time I get up and preach, and you might be saying, Cody, you're scaring me, man. Like you're yelling and you're excited about this. And I, I don't get church. And, and why are you so passionate about it? Uh, we have to be passionate about this. This is, this is the most utterly important thing in the history of history. This is the same message that has moved across cultures for 2,000 years. 
And the only way that we can experience the life that God, our maker and creator, desired for us to live is to not be passive with this understanding of who Jesus is, but to grab hold of him and say, Lord, day by day, moment by moment, reveal yourself to me in a deeper way so that I know you, so that my connection with you through my faith, make my faith as big as this gem. Shield me from all the flaming darts of the enemy so that I can live my purpose and mission here in this life. This is our call. We're a gospel-centered, disciple-making family as a church here at Redeemer. And the only way that we can live this out is by internalizing this message and not being like, man, yelly sermon this week. Yelly, you know, uncomfortable at some points. I think he forgot some of his notes at some points, you know. No, we gotta, we gotta be like, man, there's an aspect of that. And he's right, I can't be passive with Jesus. I can't be passive with him. I gotta respond. I gotta respond in a way that is clear. I don't, I don't wanna be, I don't wanna be like Pilate. I don't wanna be like Malchus. I don't wanna be like Peter, who we skipped over that and we'll probably come back to it in here a little bit, but what does Peter do all throughout this? passage. This is the chapter that Peter denies Christ. If you look at uh, the 20s, right around the 20s, it's just like a little girl comes up to Peter and says, hey, aren't you one of his disciples? And Peter says, no, I'm not. Don't you understand? Don't you understand what that means for me and you? If you're in this room and you feel any type of sense of shame or guilt, you, you got to look to this good news. This good news is actually saying there's no way you can possibly be too far gone. But we know how valuable something is. Listen to me. Look at me. Eye contact. We know how, some, how valuable something is. Why? By how much some, someone is willing to pay for it. How valuable are you? What was Jesus willing to pay for your soul? All this rebuke, all this slander, all this false ac accusation, he just took. Luke tells us that he fell silent before Peter. He fell silent before Peter. You know what happens whenever you fall, fall silent, whenever you're on the witness stand? That's almost like you're admitting guilt. Was Jesus admitting guilt? He was admitting your guilt for you in your place. He was taking on the slander that you and I deserve. He was taking on the wrath of God that we talked about last week, that you and I uh, deserve. All that Jesus did showed just how valuable your soul was to him. He went through beatings, torture, and yes, was even hung up on that tree so that Caiaphas later on could say, look, curses everyone that hangs on a tree. And then the way taught this. The people of the way said, yeah, he became a curse for us. He took on my curse. He traded places with me. He was my substitute. That's the single greatest word that the gospel has to offer us today. Who is Jesus? What is the gospel? If you do not get this word, you do not understand the gospel. Substitution. Substitution. Jesus in your place. He got the curse that you and I should have, deserve, should have deserved. He took on the con, uh, condemnation that you and I should have deserved. And then what does 2 Corinthians 5.21 said? He became your sin. He became it. 
He took on your sin so that you and I receive what? The righteousness of God. Jesus is our ultimate substitute. And that's what we see here in this passage. How are you going to respond, church? How do you have to respond? I think the only way to respond is gratitude, thankfulness, overwhelming gratitude and thankfulness of God. Look how merciful you are. Look how great you are. Look how kind you are to me. This is overwhelming. And so that response is for two people. Gratitude for the believer and gratitude for someone that doesn't know where they stand with the Lord. It's just to say, Lord, thank you for dying in my place. Thank you for being my substitute. Thank you for taking on my curse. Thank you for responding to my sin in this way so that I can have life, which is truly life. That's our response today. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Respond with gratitude to the God who died in your place. And if you don't, listen, it's probably not because you have different church preferences. It's probably, even though you're probably going to say yourself, it is. Man, I'm going to go find a different whatever Christian church. It's probably because you're passive. You're passive about the claims of Jesus. And my call to you is make a decision. Go in, rejoice, be filled with gratitude, and see how the thankfulness of the Lord begins to melt away your heart and transform your life as you submit to him as the truth, the way, and life which is truly life. Let's pray.